text in the Bible I feel like I'm sitting in the midst of, that is, as a sheep led before its shears was silent, he had to speak. <laughs> because it'd be much easier to uh, stay silent. Um, but, you know, somebody's got to speak. So, I'm, as they said, of the, of the amigos, I got elected. I drew, we, we cast lots and the will of God was made known and, and I came out on the losing end of it. Um, I, I, I want to get right into it. I, there's a lot here. Obviously, we're going to try to cover um, the Lord's teaching on the Olivet Discourse uh, in one Sunday. So, you know, that's, that's pretty formidable. And then, and then you throw on top of that, trying to cover any 37 section, 37 verse section of Jesus' teaching is hard to do. Then throw on top of that the wildfire of interest in this subject uh, across the United States. You know, uh, it started uh, really hitting its stride, I guess, although it had always been a big major topic um, when, um, and I wasn't here when he wrote this book, but uh, I have read it. Uh, the late great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey came out in the 70s and quickly was gobbled up by evangelicals and and uh, and then that became the uh, you know the position of the church mainly because it was written very simply in novel form so that people could grasp it and and digest it and it was made it very popular. Uh, then you know lately it got kind of revived uh, on the scene by uh, Left Behind and the series of novels that came out after the Left Behind, the movie that was on the big screen, and everybody got, you know, passionate about it. And as evangelicals tend to do, uh, we get sidetracked. And so in these last few years, there's been a even, you know, more concise discussion going on inside of uh, a very conservative branch of evangelical life, which I'm a part of. And it was kicked off by intentionally by Dr. John MacArthur when he um, opened his 2007 Shepherds Conference with the message entitled, Why Every Self-Respecting Calvinist is a Premillennialist. And in the presence of some of his good friends who were all millennial, and he then made his case. and, And he did that for several reasons. One of his main stated reasons was because he wanted this discussion to come to the forefront. He felt like eschatology was being thrown to the back. And uh, when we use terms, a lot of times it gets confusing. So eschatology, it just comes from the word eschaton, which is the study of last things. And so uh, that, that's, if you look in a systematic theology book, you're going to go through the chapters and there's going to be one called last things or eschatology or something like that. And so it's very important that we know where we stand on these issues. Why? You might say, well, I'm, you know, pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? But we shouldn't laugh and snicker, really, about a subject that Jesus, in the last days of his life, in the last days of his life, spent a significant amount of time talking about. I mean, he's facing the cross, and he takes the time to teach his men about future things. So we shouldn't laugh and snigger about it. Matter of fact, the New Testament is almost... Um, impossible to understand unless you deal with eschatology because it's all through there. It's not just in Revelation as some people think or Daniel or Ezekiel or some 
some of the writings is Isaiah. It's throughout the scriptures. As a matter of fact, it begins in the very beginning. When God promises he will crush the head of Satan under the foot of his seed. That's really the beginning of eschatology, right there. The end of things. How will it all end? And that's, that's how it all ends. We know that. But now, we're not the only ones who care about this. The movie 2012 is out. And so we've got the Mayan account of how things, I think, wasn't it the Mayans, the Mayan calendar? I've not seen the movie. But, you know, there's this buzz in our day. And it's not just in our day. It's, it, it really is from the day of Jesus. The disciples are buzzing about the end times. Everybody wants to talk about it. If you go look at the intertestamental books, which were written by the Jewish uh, men of that day, the leaders of that day, their writings are filled with things about the last days. And so this isn't some new fad that started. This, this started way before we were ever uh, in the discussion. So we start here, and we're going to look at Mark 13. And, and uh, I say up front, you know, that um, I, told, I, I told Steve, my hope is that you don't rend your clothes, beat your chest, and throw up ashes uh, and count me accursed when I'm done because... What I'm about to present is several positions, and then I, you know, I feel like, uh, as I was tying it up, I told Dave, it gets confusing if you just throw out all these positions, and it, it really gets confusing. So I make no bones about the fact that I have a particular opinion about the passage and the interpretation of it, and I'm going to try to go through that also. We can disagree over this. Um, I, I, I believe what I'm teaching. I've spent a lot of hours on it, not only in the last week, but for months and really years, and my dissertation deals with this uh, very issue. Um, and so I take it to be very serious uh, because uh, I think we do need to have a position. But we can disagree. We can come look at the same subject and have different opinions. Uh, we can love one another and, and, and encourage one another, even in our disagreement, and seek to challenge one another um, The text we're looking at, Mark 13, Bertrand Russell, one of the greatest uh, thinkers of his day, the higher critic, took this passage, and on the grounds of this passage, and this passage really alone, he sought to disprove the validity of these words and Jesus Christ, therefore, to say, if he's wrong here, he's wrong everywhere, and the Bible is a book of fairy tales. That's how important this text is. If we come to a conclusion that says this text isn't right, then we have no reason to believe Jesus anywhere. Because if he's wrong about this, he could be wrong anywhere. And so the whole of the Bible is thrown into question. And many, knowing this, many scholars have tried to wrestle with these words. And so we have some positions. I'm going to throw them out there and then we'll go through the text together. The futurist position is the most common um, uh, taken in uh, in the conservative circles today of the evangelical world, um, especially in the United States. And, and the position is uh, one that seeks to make sense of the words of the text. And, and it, any, any good futurist looks back at Matthew 23, 37 through 39 and, and sees Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem, say to Jerusalem or to the leaders, I leave to you your house desolate. I leave to you your house. Not God's house. Your house. Desolate. 
And then he, then he says, but you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And from that text, then flows into Matthew 24, which is the parallel of Mark 13, our text, where Jesus then says that the walls of the temple will be totally dismembered and thrown down, and then there will be nothing left, and then uh, uh, he launches into our teaching. And, and from this position, the futurist position, the idea is that the, the, the disciples ask a combination of, of questions, which then Jesus answers the questions, and the questions for the disciples centered around the destruction of the temple and the end of time. That was their question. When will these things be, the falling of the temple, and what will be the sign that these things are occurring? Will be accomplished is the other wording. Uh, and Matthew asks ask it in three parts. He's the only one. Mark and Luke don't record that middle, the last section, which is, and what is the sign of the destruction that's coming and the sign of your coming? That's an end times question. So the futurist looks there at those questions in Matthew and says, based on what he said about the house being desolate, based on the fact that he said that he, you will not see me again until you cry out, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, which we know to be his triumphal uh, coronation of the kingdom. Then the disciples ask these three questions, and Jesus is obviously then teaching from uh, that verse, from the questions forward to the end, about things that, that deal with the end of time. The end of the uh, of all things, and so they the strength in this position is that it treats the text with a very literal interpretation, um, and and tries to capture uh, the thoughts of of people uh, from that time and from that culture, and then interpret Jesus' words in light of that literal interpretation and the spirit of the age, so to speak, in Jesus' day. That's the strengths, and, um, and there are many good men who hold this position. Matter of fact, that's the position you've been taught, I'm sure, most of you, all of your life. And um, so that position has good standing, good, good scholars. D.A. Carson is one that I would mention that holds a futurist position on this text. And, um, and I respect D.A. Carson a, a ton. I mean, he's a great scholar. There's also... Um, a position that is known as full preterism. And again, preterism just means past, historical, it's finished. Full preterism uh, is a position held mostly by post-millennialists and a few Church of Christ members, actually. And mainly seeks to put all of what Jesus says into the A.D. 70 time frame. In other words, everything Jesus says... In Matthew 24 and 25, everything he says, everything he says happened in AD 70. The fall of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the, uh, the, they go so far as to even say he came and his coming was a spiritual coming and he judged the living and the dead and he raised up those who uh, believed in him to new life and he's taken them to heaven and he also now has inaugurated the thousand year, the millennium, the post-millennial view of the millennium, the new heaven and the new earth which we now live in, and as we're living through it, uh, it's improving to a climax which will be, uh, you know, this golden era on the earth and the new heaven and the new earth, okay? 
And they believe everything is finished. Everything. I mean, there's no exception to it at all. Well, the strength of the position is is that um, it seems to err on the side of, of, of all of the text again as the futurist position holds all things together in the text. The, this position, the full preterist, holds everything together and says the difference, the futurist says it happens in the future, still hasn't happened 2,000 years later. The, the full preterists say it happened in 7080. 70 A.D., that it, it happened then. It all is completed. Okay, and now we're living in the new heaven and the new earth. So that brings us to, to where, you know, where I stand. And, uh, I, you know, I, I want to say again that I, this is a, uh, a subject that, you know, I, I am open to discussion about. I, I don't see this as crucial to the gospel in any way that, that if you, uh, other than that his words are true. But outside of that, where you land on the millennial kingdom, where you land on past, present, or future, where you land on all this, doesn't determine whether you know Christ and you can make him known. Okay? And, and so please understand that. But let's look at what Jesus teaches us here in Mark 13 now at our passage and um, try to make... Uh, Try to make headway here. Jesus taught, said in the historical context here, Jesus has taught his followers that the judgment of God is soon to come on the nation of Israel because of their continued rebellion against him. We see that in Mark 12, verse, uh, beginning in verse 1, and it goes down to um, uh, that verse 12 in that section. And he teaches the parable of the tenants. And he says that, you know, the, 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 the master sent his servants and the servants were beaten and killed. And then he sends his own son and they thinking, surely they'll listen to my son. And they, instead they beat and kill his son. And then he quotes uh, the passage here uh, from the Old Testament, Psalm 118. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus quotes that in saying... In condemnation of the of the nation of Israel, saying, "Your cornerstone has come, your promised Messiah has come, and you've rejected him, and I am the promised Messiah." He's speaking a word of judgment of them, condemnation. Matthew makes it more explicit in his gospel. If you look at Matthew 21, and you want you want to kind of hold your finger in Matthew and Mark because I'm going to bounce back and forth a little. I'm going to try not to do it too much. And get confusing. But if you look at this uh, passage in Matthew 21, it begins at verse 33. And then I particularly want to look at his addition here that Mark doesn't add, where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given for a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is obviously speaking condemnation on the people of Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And he promises to pull the kingdom from them and give it to ones who are bearing fruit, uh, which I see as a reference to the church and the Gentiles being brought into with the Jews. Rather than a nationalistic focus, I see Jesus prepping and pushing one people of God. And so we have that. And then we see in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, we see uh, another condemnation of the Jews. 23, 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings 
and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. Luke records that in Luke 19 as the surrounding of the city of Jerusalem by the uh, siege walls and the desolation which came on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Nobody disagrees about that. Uh, Futurists and partial preterists agree there that that definitely this is about 70 A.D. There's no question about that, I don't think. Uh, I haven't found any. And so he says that, Your house is left you desolate, for I will tell you, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A messianic uh, word from the Old Testament. They, they would say this at the coronation of the kingdom, the Old Testament told them. So he says there, a pronouncement of judgment on them. And, and so he's judging them for their unbelief. If we look at Mark 11, really Mark 11:27 to get our context and follow all the way through uh, the end of the text we left off with last week, the end of 12, we see Jesus being challenged and rebutting the challenge continually in that passage and warning about the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and their, and their, uh, you know, their devouring of widows' homes and the, the way that they pray with a pretense. Uh, they will receive greater condemnation, Jesus says. He's pronouncing judgment on them again. And then we come to the widow offering, and, and that leads us into our text. Jesus goes in, is in the temple, and he goes and sits down across from the money box, as we talked about last week, and watches the offerings being given, and he pronounces acceptance of the widow's offering because it was given in faith. He pronounces acceptance of that offering and a re, really a rejection of everything that's been given before. And as he came, verse 13, verse 1, and as he came... Out of the temple. I want to stop right there. This, I believe, is Jesus riding Ichabod over the door of the temple. His leaving the temple is he's, he's saying the presence of God is gone. This is the last time he goes in the temple. He's already said, this is your house. Not my house, not my father's house. This is now your house and it's left to you desolate. He approves of the, he approves of the woman's offering. And then in, in I believe, uh, stark contrast, so the disciples clearly understand what he's doing, he's pronouncing judgment in his leaving the temple. And when he walks out, the disciples, we don't know who it was, uh, maybe it was Judas, I don't know, says, look, Master, at all these great buildings which are built here. Look how wonderful, magnificent the temple is. And they're drawing his attention to that. And look at his response in verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This leads the disciples to setting our context again to ask a question. A couple of questions. Because of what he's been saying about the temple, they're now piqued in their interest. And we're going to see why in just a moment. But that's kind of the historical setting here. Jesus then gives their answer. He answers the questions they pose him in 3 and 4 from 5 through 37. So, now, um, let me state uh, here the uh, pause with the exegesis just a moment to give a, what I think to be strengths to the position I'm about to give you, and then I'll give you the position. The context is limited here. The context is limited to a first century, first century fulfillment of his teaching. 
And I believe it's limited that way because of the context I've just set where Jesus is condemning the Israelites. He's condemning the nation of Israel. I believe it's limited in its uh, context historically because, and we will see this as we go through the text, there are things stated that they are to do in this text that cannot be done unless you are in Jerusalem. How will we, question, who live anywhere else in the world, flee the coming destruction of Jerusalem? How, how will we flee? It would be impossible. I'm, I'm not in Jerusalem is what I'm saying. And so he's talking, I believe, historically to his men who are in Jerusalem and will be in Jerusalem. We know from the book of Acts they were in Jerusalem. Peter, James, they were there in Jerusalem until AD, late in AD, in the 60s at least, and I believe until the 70s. So we have a historical limit. We have a geographical limit that Jesus puts on it in its fulfillment. And culturally it's limited. Culturally it's limited. Um, and I say that because if you look, he speaks clearly, I think, in the, in the section of 9 through 13 about being drugged before governors and synagogues. How will we be drugged in front of a synagogue? The synagogues no longer operate as they did in Jesus' day. And so he's very specific, I believe, about what's coming on them so that they will be prepared for it. And, uh, and so uh, I think it's limited. I think that's one strength of the position I hold. I think another strength is that the disciples are asking about a literal temple which they just left and whose destruction has been predicted over and over again. And now they have serious questions about what has been told to them concerning the temple that they are looking at. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at this temple, this magnificent structure, asking questions about that literal temple. Not a temple yet to be built, but this temple. When will these things be? When will the destruction come that you're predicting, Jesus, about this temple? That's, I think... Uh, some of the strengths that I'll, I'll present. And then Jesus says that the events he's talking about will be accomplished in the, in the generation that he lives in. And I'm going to save that till we get there in the text. I think that's one strength. The entire section is couched, is couched in terms of what is actual, uh, what his actual hearers are to see, hear, and experience. You can't dismiss just out of hand his use of the second person in these warnings. You will be hearing this and see that you are not frightened. And they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, if anyone says to you, I have told you in advance, even so you too, when you see all these things. You can't just dismiss out of hand his use of the word you to them sitting there looking at the temple and, and just say, well, that he was talking about believers of all time. He's very specific. Had he wanted to say that, I think he would have said that. I think another thing we have to consider as we look at the text is his use of the word generation in um, verse 34. You know, some uh, interpret this to mean the generation actually is dealing with race, and it's dealing with the Jewish race. And so what Jesus is saying is the Jewish race will not cease to exist until all these things have happened. Others take the human races and say that the world won't come to an end until all these things happen. Okay? And uh, so I, I, I hear that argument, and I, and I 
trying to process it. Well, here's how I went about. Here's how I go about it. The Greek word here, genos, where is you? Um, this word would this would require that the Greek word genos um, here be used instead of genea. The word genea, which is used here for generation. Now, there's a word for genos, which means race, race of people. And Jesus does not use that word. He uses gena, which is the word used for the generation Jesus is living in. And it's used that way. Listen to this. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, it's used 27 times to talk about the generation Jesus is living in. I think Matthew, in understanding and hearing what Jesus said, had he wanted to talk about a race of people, would have distinguished this use of generation from all of his other uses. But he didn't distinguish. He lumped it in with all of the ones that are clearly talking about Jesus' generation. Matthew 1.17 is an example. 11.16, Matthew 12. 39, 41, 42, 45. You see, it's just replete here. Mark uses it in Mark 8, 12 and verse 38, 9 and 19, 13 and verse 30. Luke uses it on a number of occasions. Uh, And clearly he's talking about the generation Jesus was living in at that time. And so Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all of these things have been completed. And I am left to believe that that means this generation, meaning his generation, as he sits on the Mount of Olives. In sum, surely Jesus does not denounce the first century temple in which he's standing in the uh, first, uh, in, in Mark 12. Surely he doesn't um, denounce this temple in 13, verse 2. Uh, surely he doesn't declare it desolate as he does in Matthew 23 prophesying its total destruction as he does in Mark 13:2 and then answer the question when shall these things be and and then begin to warn about some temple that hasn't been constructed yet it just seems to be a total disconnect of the historical literal context that Jesus is dealing with it seems it would not answer their question it would further confuse them about what he's saying and so these are the strengths, and now we move in again to the exegesis, which we started a moment ago, um, and we're going to go until we don't have time, and then we'll be done. I'll do my best. So we look at this first section here about the signs of, uh, that are coming. When will these things be? Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, that, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. And so uh, he goes through here um, uh, talking about uh, these warning signs. The disciples asked him uh, this question about when will these things be, and he's giving an answer here. Uh, this has caused uh, some interpreters to push this to the end because they don't see the significance of those signs being poured out in Jesus's own, excuse me, Jesus's own day. Um, but I want to quote a a reputable New Testament scholar here when he says, within the mainline Jewish writings of this period, um, 
the covering of a wide range of styles, genres, political persuasions, and theological perspectives, there is virtually no evidence that the Jews uh, were expecting the end of the space-time universe. There's no evidence they thought the whole world was coming to an end. What they expected and uh, what they believed would happen is that the present world order which they lived under and the Gentiles and the pagans holding power would come to an end and the Jews would then be in power again. That was their uh, belief the covenant people of the Creator God would be in rule again over the whole earth. And so when we see that they say uh, that the end of the age has come, let's don't read into that our belief about the end of the age, which is the end of time, but rather take their word, which is the end of the Jewish, uh, the Gentile age, the end of the Gentile ruler over them, okay? That's what they saw. So the disciples are looking for a fulfillment of Israel's hope for the story that was told to them. They're, and the close of the age for which they longed was not the end of the space-time order, but the end of the present evil age and the introduction of the still very much this worldly age to come, um, a kingdom, in other words, the end of Israel's period of mourning and exile and the beginning of freedom and vindication. That's what they're looking for here. So we look at this these predictions of Jesus, religious impostors and messianic pretenders. Well, if we look in Acts 5, that's happening. There's those who are claiming to be the Christ in Acts 5, 36 through 37. Again, in Acts 8, 9 through 10. In Acts 13, verse 6. In Acts 21, verse 38. There are false Christs rising up, even as Acts is being unfolded. And so Josephus reports to us, who's uh, the greatest Jewish historian of the time, that under the reign of Nero, deceivers and false prophets were arrested on a daily basis. It was happening. Now, we know Josephus exaggerates somewhat, okay? Maybe it wasn't daily, maybe it was weekly. It was happening a lot, all right? It was commonplace for this to happen. Eusebius referred in his history of this period to false messiahs. All, all the time, false messiahs. Increase, so we have the first prediction that many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will lead many astray. I, I think that's happened, has it not? And, and it's happened in world history, and it particularly happened then. There was increased military conflict in their time, as verse uh, 6, uh, excuse me, as verse 7 says, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. I mean, this time was, uh, was, just known for its, uh, its, its uprisings. An uprising in Caesarea had seen the death of 20,000 Jewish lives in, in the period between 33 and 70 A.D. In Caesarea, 20,000 Jews were killed. In Scythopolis, 13,000 Jews were killed. In Alexandria, 50,000 were slain. Uh, and 10,000 were killed in Damascus. Josephus reports that when the emperor Caligula ordered his statue to be erected at the temple in Jerusalem in 40 A.D., the Jews refused, and as a result, they lived in a state of fearful anxiety over imminent war with the Romans. So this rumors of wars and wars increasing happened in their day. They saw it with their own eyes. Don't, don't just take Josephus' word for it. Tacitus, one of the greatest uh, Roman uh, Historians says that disturbances were taking place in Germany, in Africa, in Thrace. Insurrection was occurring in Gaul. Intrigues among Parthians were taking place. The war was happening in Britain, and there was even a war in Armenia. So there was war all over the face of the earth. The Roman Empire uh, was literally at war 
in this age of Jesus' day, just after his crucifixion and resurrection. So, um, Jesus gives this and says there is an increase in these wars and rumors of wars. Then, Then we see political upheaval and turmoil. And that is clearly happening in their time. Natural disasters. Well, we read about them in the New Testament. Acts 11.28 um, occurred in, that famine occurred in 44 A.D. A uh, famine that spread all over uh, Judea in that part of the world. Uh, it caused the great offering which Paul sent to try to care for their, for their needs as the famine spread. Three other famous uh, famines occurred during the reign of Claudius. The Roman historian Tacitus and, uh, said that there was a prevalence of famines in this period of history unlike anything ever seen in the world that was known in the world. I mean, an increase of famines did occur in the time between 33 and 70 A.D. So earthquakes were happening uh, commonly. They were commonplace. We won't go through all the proofs of that historically. Uh, there were, um, you know, there were terrors and signs from the heavens recorded. Matter of fact, it's one of these signs from heaven which Nero uh, is proposed to have killed himself over. Uh, he, he understood that a great sign in heaven would appear at the end of his time. And when he saw Halley's Comet, he killed himself. Uh, because he believed in uh, fate and the fatalistic uh, actions of the gods. And so Nero, uh, in his story, uh, and it's just more proof that these signs were occurring all over. Okay? So, we keep moving. Persecution and martyrdom is coming, right? In verses 9 through 13. Persecution and martyrdom. He says, be on your guard. Notice again, imploring them. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. So Mark's version uh, is very clear about this beating, and, and so, so to speak. So we have um, the uh, religious persecution, which obviously Acts records for us. Uh, it happened. I don't have to go through those references. I think you know the suffering the apostles went through because of believing Jesus' gospel at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. They faced it. And so <clears throat> you might say, uh, and I hope you caught it when I read it, that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. And you say, that, all right, there it is. How can you say that the gospel was preached? To all the nations before A.D. 70. Well, I, actually, I, I don't have to say it. Um, the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul says, uh, writing uh, in, in the New Testament to the believers at Colossae, listen to what he says. The word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world. Also, It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Again, Paul refers to the gospel in this way, in in, uh, Colossians 1.23, that you have heard, this gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It seems that the Apostle Paul saw the fulfillment of Jesus' words already having taken place in his day. 
how can he say that it's been preached to all the God, all, all of the world? Well, clearly because they viewed the Roman world to be the world. They viewed the Roman nations to be the nations. As a matter of fact, that's the way Luke records the census which brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. In those days, all the world was taxed and counted by Augustus. All the world? The American Indians, the Mayans, they were counted? No. All the known world, all the Roman world was counted and taxed. And that's what brought Jesus there. And that's in Luke 2, obviously. So their use of the words about the whole world. Romans 1.8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And then he does it again in Romans 10.18. Now you might say, well, that would discourage us from missionary endeavor. This is the proof for missionary endeavor. No. Just because they reached their whole world before A.D. 70 does not mean we have reached our entire world before His second coming. They reached their world, and the implication is we should be reaching out to our world, going to Nepal, China, places that never have heard the gospel in the jungles of Africa, possibly, or other far-flung places of the globe. So, prior to A.D. 70, the inhabited earth as it was known in their day, had heard the gospel, and it was in precise fulfillment of what Jesus said in Mark 13, 14. And so I believe that all of this passage so far can be, e- can be easily seen as happening prior to the fall of the temple. Now we move into the more difficult passage. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What is this abomination of desolation? What's mentioned four times in the book of Daniel, which is why he says, let the reader understand. And you've read about the abomination of desolation. And an abomination did occur in, in 168 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes, in his conquering of the Jews and putting down their, their nation, he went into the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar, took the oil and broth from that pig and scattered it over the courtyard of the temple. This would have been a great abomination and a great desolation for the people of God, right? But Jesus seems to be drawing on that very event to say it's going to happen again. There will be yet another abomination of desolation that you need to look for as a sign that these things are about to happen. Now look what he says immediately after talking about the, um, the, uh, the abomination of desolation. He says, then those who are in Judea need to flee to the mountains. He says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down. That's because the fastest way between your house and the walls of Jerusalem was from rooftop to rooftop. Don't even waste time to go down to the street and get lost zigzagging through the streets. You may get caught. Run across the housetops. Get out of town. Now. He's imploring them again. And then he says, if you're in the field working, don't go back and get an overcoat. Go directly to the hills of Judea. And then he says, if you're pregnant and nursing, woe unto you. And if it happens in the winter, woe unto you. You know, in other words, there's going to be great despair for those who are nursing, those who are bearing a child. 
the winter travel in those days was almost impossible across roads. They would have had to take out cross country. The roads would have been impassable. Pray that it not be on the Sabbath. Why? Because the gates of Jerusalem would have been closed. And all of the villages would have been closed. No one would have been able to help them. Now, if this flight is to occur in the future, how do we make sense of that? How are we going to flee from Jerusalem? We don't live there. Will the gates of the cities be closed? Will merchants not be selling food on the Sabbath day? Well, they do every day in our day. They sell food every day in our day. You see, the problems you start to run into when you try to force this all into the future, you run into this, and that is there is a geographical, historical context that was very specific to these men that he's instructing. Jesus has great concern for them. He's given them very specific instructions. Now, I brought up this um, abomination of desolation. And um, Luke records that the abomination of desolation is actually is actually the Roman armies that are surrounding the city. He doesn't say anything about abomination of desolation. He says when you see those when you see them coming to surround the city, make haste, leave the city. You know. So here's the historical proof. I've told you what I think about it. Here's the historical proof I think to this. Flavius Josephus again, uh, writing, said this that um, uh, he recorded this in the Wars of the Jews. It's a 200-page document, one of the most detailed accounts. He says this, uh, that the war that broke out in 66 A.D. between Rome and the Jewish people was simply an intensified continuation of hostilities that had begun brewing for years in Jerusalem. The last Jewish stronghold was the focus of Rome's most brutal rage. Multitudes of thieves, zealots, murderers had flocked to the city seeking refuge. The city was without law and order. Chaos and anarchy reigned. The city, uh, the city divided into warring factions who took turns attacking each other. The one incident, uh, in one incident, more than 12,000 of the city's nobles and leading citizens were tortured and killed by zealots. Those who tried to escape had their throats slit and their bodies were left to rot in the streets. Burial became an impossibility. Huge piles of cadavers filled the streets or were thrown from the city's walls. Josephus said that. The noise of those that were fighting was incessant, both by day and by night, but the lamentations of those that mourned exceeded the noise of the fighting. They, moreover, were continually inventing pernicious things about each other. And when they had resolved upon anything, they executed it without mercy and omitted no method of torment or of barbarity. That's what he says in Book 5, Chapter 1. Rome had come to attack the Jewish people because of their insurrections. And Vespasian was uh, recalled from from, from Judea. Uh, to be ruler of Rome after Nero killed himself. He set his son Titus in charge of the men, and so he gave him responsibility for this. And he repeatedly offered Titus the clemency to the Jews if they would surrender, and they would not surrender. Famine set in. Storehouses went dry. Reservoirs were polluted. Again, we read the words of Josephus. The madness of the seditions did also increase together with their famine, and both those miseries were every day inflamed more than more. For there was no concern that appeared anywhere public, corn that appeared anywhere publicly. It was now a miserable case, and a sight that would justly bring tears into your eyes, insomuch that children 
will pull the very morsels of their fathers were eating out of their mouths. So did mothers do to their infants. They were starving their own children. As a matter of fact, the wickedness increased. And we have the record of a woman in Jerusalem in that day who, who roasted her own child and ate its flesh trying to survive. This is how horrible of a destruction and desolation came upon Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman army, which I believe is the abomination of desolation, the Roman army itself as it surrounded the cities. And we might look for, if this was written to the people of uh, Jesus' day, we might look for a fulfillment that they actually took it that way. And Josephus records that for us. He records that for us. Listen to what he says. While the holy house, the temple was on fire, everything was plundered, and they came to hand, to the, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. Nor was there commiseration of any age of, or any reverence of gravity, but children, old men, profane persons, priests were all slain in the same manner. Talking about the Romans killing. Moreover, many, when they saw the fire, exerted their, their uh, utmost strength. Uh, and did break out into groans and outcries. Perea also did return the echo, as well as the mountains round about Jerusalem, and argumented the for, augmented the force of the noise. Yet was the misery itself more terrible than this disorder, for one would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as if full of fire on every part, that the blood was more in quantity than the fire, and that the slain were more in numbers than they saw than, than those who slew them. For the ground did nowhere appear visible because of the dead bodies that lay upon it. This again is a description of these um, events. Josephus says, when uh, those the, the, they grew weary of the killing, they, they went out into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn and slew those whom they overtook without mercy. They set their houses on fire. I mean, this is the description. Almost 100,000 Jews survived and were carried off into slavery. A million, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered in Jerusalem and the surrounding area in this overtaking. So we would expect that, uh, the, the, that Jesus' followers would have been caught up in this. Jesus' followers would, would, have, would have suffered the same fate. No. As a matter of fact, as the approaching army of Rome came, Josephus records that the Christians fled Jerusalem. In seeing the approaching army, in seeing that they were beginning to build a siege wall this time, they had come and encircled and backed away, and now they were coming again. And when they saw them coming again, building the siege wall, the Christians fled. They fled to Pella. They were saved in mass from the destruction that befell the Jews. They were then dispersed to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have their missionary journeys recorded in history also. They went as far as India and China with the gospel, as far as all over Europe, preaching the gospel. Why were they so invigorated by what happened in 70 A.D.? I say it's because they saw the fulfillment of Jesus' words. And not only did they now have his resurrection, but they had a historical event that nobody in the world could deny the validity of to say, our, our master told us this would happen. His words are sure and true. And they went with great passion to the ends of the earth, uh, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. So we see this. 
um, passage here. He tells them, be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Now we come to verse 24 through 27. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will uh, not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they... Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Well, I I would say that this passage also is fulfilled. And the reason is, is that Matthew gives us the detail that the sign of the Son of Man would be seen in the heavens. The sign of the Son of Man. And then we get the clue of the Old Testament. Remember Jesus speaking in his context is a, is a Hebrew prophet. And so wouldn't he use the words of the Hebrew prophets when he described a great calamity? Well, sure he would. That's how the Hebrew people would understand him. Let's take Jesus at his word. Jesus is not suggesting in Matthew 26, verse 64... Listen to what he tells Caiaphas. You have said so, that I am the Christ. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He told Caiaphas, you will see me seated in glory and coming on the clouds of heaven. I don't take that to mean anything about the end time. I take that to mean that Caiaphas was in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., And when he saw these things take place, he saw the power of God and the power of Christ. I take that to be literally what he's pushing us to here. Let's, you know, think about the the, uh, passages in the Old Testament in his, uh, that we might turn to as a reference. Let's read some of their words quickly as we come near the end here. Isaiah 13. You say, but the moon didn't forbear to shine, and the stars didn't fall, and the sun didn't quit shining. How can you say this happened in 70 A.D.? How can you say that? Well, because I said Jesus is speaking in very common language to them, prophetic language. Look what it says in Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation. And to destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. You say, okay. Well, those are the words of Isaiah spoken by the power of the Lord about the fall of Babylon, which did happen. And the sun didn't stop shining, and the stars didn't fall, did they? Hmm. Let's look over and see if there's any other proof here to what I'm saying. Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. We look at his judgment on the nations. Isaiah 34, 4 through 5. He says, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. This is the way Isaiah spoke for the Lord, on behalf of the Lord, about the destruction of Edom, which did happen. 
Ezekiel 37, oh, 32, excuse me, 7 through 15, the same language is used about the destruction that they already knew had taken place. What am I trying to say? I'm saying that we may read these words and think in our modern context, oh, he's talking about the end of the space-time continuum, but what I'm saying is the Hebrew people would have heard these words and automatically said, he's speaking in prophetic hyperbole. He's talking about the fall of a nation. And now it's not Babylon or Edom, but it's the fall of the Jewish nation. I think they clearly understood that. Having seen the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, having seen the destruction which came on Jerusalem and the Son of Man coming, he says then, and I will send out the angels and gather his elect. The word angels here uh, means messenger. Very well may mean angels. And I don't want to debate or quibble over that. It could mean preachers. I will offer that as one explanation. And they were sent out all over the earth, and they did gather God's elect through the preaching of the gospel. I told you that, and history records that for us. It could be the angels themselves who attend to the preaching of God's word and gather elect, bring power through the preaching of God's word. It does not have to mean the gathering of uh, people to Jerusalem, as some would want us to believe. So we come to then 28 through 31. Jesus gives the fig tree analogy. Sitting on under a tree, any tree could have done for this. He plucks a limb, it runs with its sap, and he tells them. The fig tree is not here representing Israel or anything else. It's just a good physical example. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. When you see these things happening, he's at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away, and we've already discussed generation, until these things take place. The most natural interpretation of the word generation is the generation which Jesus is then living in. It's the only way Matthew ever used the word. It's the only way Mark ever used the word. It's the only way Luke ever used the word. These things will happen before the close of that generation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And with that, and I want to make that note, I know we're running out of time. There's a transition that happens. It's very obvious in the Greek. The section he comes to in 32 through 37 moves from very specific language about specific events to there is no sign. What happened? I think it's very clever of our Lord. The first question, when will these things be, is answered in verses 4 through uh, 31. Uh, Excuse me, 4 through 27. Verses 28 and 31 are a parable which separates his answering the first question and the second question. And what was the second question? When will your coming happen? When is that going to happen? Oh, then we get Jesus' word on his second coming. I still believe this to be future. Hasn't happened yet. He's coming again. But concerning that day, and notice how he teaches, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Now, this is the same man that just gave specific signs about the, about the destruction of Jerusalem. And now he's saying, nobody knows the coming of my second coming. Notice that. But only the Father. Be on guard. And obviously he's referring to in his humanity, he didn't know when he was coming the second time. In his deity, he very well knew that. But 
in his humanity. He didn't know that. The Father knows it. And then look what it does. Be on guard. Keep awake. Very, not you. Notice the absence now of you in this part of the passage. Not you. Just be on guard. Be awake. Very general terms being used here. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For, and now he draws them into it, the web. You do not know when that hour will be. In other words, from the time of Jesus until now, no one knows when he's coming again. We better all be alert, be prepared, and be awake. All of us. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Uh, In the evening, at midnight, or when the cock crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, not just to your generation, but to all generations, I say, stay awake. Stay on guard. What I believe Jesus handed us in this passage is far from what Bertrand Russell believed. Bertrand Russell believed it disproved Christ. I believe it proves Christ's word. I believe his word will not pass away, but will stand forever. What Jesus has handed us in the Olivet Discourse, and what I'm afraid some of us are wanting to give away, is a smoking gun of evidence to the validity of his word. 70 A.D. is a smoking gun in a murder scene. And what we're left with as detectives is to walk in, pick the gun up, and say, here's murder weapon number one. You don't think Jesus is coming again? You go talk to a lost man. You don't think Jesus is coming again? If you don't believe the Bible, here, read Tacitus. Read Josephus. See what he did to his own people in 70 A.D. And he foretold he would do it. Jesus has handed us the evidence to prove his word because he wants us to have confidence in him, full confidence. And I believe that it far from tears down God's word to say all those verses already happened, it builds it up. It strengthens it so that now we look in anticipation. He will come. He will come. Now, there's a lot of questions I could answer, I'm sure. And a lot you have asked, and, and uh, y'all will get accused of running us out of time on purpose. Maybe so. Uh, not, not really. I just knew it's going to be impossible to cover. And I skipped a lot of stuff uh, because it's just impossible to cover all these verses at one time. But what, it, what I want you to take away is that Jesus Christ is authoritative. His words are true and sure. They will never pass away. He has given us the evidence. In 70 A.D., He has given us the evidence that we need to have faith that He's coming again. And He is coming again. Let's be prepared. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time, we just thank You.